Welcome to the Daily Standard Podcast. It's June 20th, 2018. I'm Charlie Sykes. Now, obviously, the political world continues to be absolutely consumed by the back and forth over the family separation policy at the border. So we're going to talk about something completely different. And we have a special guest today, the Weekly Standard's own David Byler, who has just unveiled what is going to be just, uh, you know, this is catnip to political nerds, the swing seat model. Thanks for joining me. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Well, let's let's talk about this. Um, We're going to divide this into two parts. Number one, we're going to get to what you are now predicting for the control of the United States Senate seat by seat. This is going to be uh, the swing seat model. You're going to be updating it from now right through the November election. But let's just start Mm -hmm. by talking about what this thing is and why you would be willing to put your reputation out there on the line. So let's talk about the user manual. So the model is really at its core. It's a way of thinking about information and a way of thinking about elections. So um, during election season, you're going to have an avalanche of information of polling, reporting, um, fundraising numbers, all sorts of things from uh, all kinds of different sources. And what the model is, it's a way to look at the polls, to think about the polls, to see where public opinion is at, and to use what we know about past elections to forecast the results of this coming election. So uh, it's a way to look at where things are now, look at where they might be in the future, and give a probability to future events like, you know, the Republicans winning in, say, Missouri, or the Republicans holding on to the chamber, or the Democrats getting 48 seats or 52 seats or what have you. Um, Literally, it's kind of a large piece of code. It has multiple different programs that kind of, you know, talk to each other and things like that. But really, it's, it's, yeah, it's a way of this is da- this is data, data. This is data driven. You're, you're, you're not stepping outside your house in the morning and uh, turning on Fox News or MSNBC and listening to the pundits. You, you actually have something that will be consistent, consistent data points. Exactly. Yeah. All I do now that I've built the thing is I go collect the polls every day. I collect uh, all the latest polls on President Trump's approval rating. I collect all the latest head to head polls in the Senate. I've already grabbed a bunch of data about the candidates, uh, you know, their level of experience, things along those uh, lines. And I just run it through this program that I've already built and it comes up with forecasts every day. So um, all the judgment calls are kind of pre-made, if you will, um, if that makes sense. Yeah, you describe it. The model takes in current information, mostly polls, to make probabilistic Mm -hmm. predictions about which candidate is going to win each Senate race in November, which party is going to control the upper chamber in January. And the simplest statement, swing seat eats data, processes it, and spits out our projections. And you're going to be updating this every day. So um, let's because people are so skeptical about polls, polls have had a, uh, let's say, a, a problematic track record in recent uh, <laughs> elections. So let's let's just talk about these statistical models and, and, and why you think you have some confidence in this formula. And this is this is a unique formula. This is this is not a, a model that you're going to find someplace else. This is yours. Right, David? I mean, you you have you basically cook this thing, you know, at home from scratch, correct? Yeah. 
Okay. So, so this is a model that I built. Um, you know, I've looked at what the other models have done and have learned from them because sites like 538 and the New York Times Upshot have undertaken projects that are really similar to this in the past. So I'm not doing this in a, in a total vacuum, but yeah, I, I wrote the code, I collected the data, um, all of it. And I, I think you make a really good point about the polls. And here's kind of how I'd frame it is when I, I talk to readers and people who like my stuff, they sort of have one of two attitudes. One attitude is that the polls are all terrible and we can't trust any of them. And, you know, it's all garbage, so on and so forth. The other attitude is, um, you know, anything that sort of has the sheen of being scientific or uh, using statistics or anything like that is obviously flawless and we need to be really empirical and so on and so forth. And uh, my take on this is a little bit in the middle. I try to be clear eyed about what the polls can and can't tell us. And that's really um, what I think the model does. Now, the poll did take a hit in 2016 in terms of public perception, um, but I don't think that was necessarily a fair hit. If you've been studying public opinion, if you've been studying polling and elections, you probably know that sometimes the polls are off. And if the polls are off all in one direction, and in 2016, a lot of them underestimated Trump, um, it can lead to a different outcome. So I've built some stuff around that into the model. I've built, I've essentially pulled it to think through scenarios where, you know, the current state of affairs sticks around or scenarios where all the Democrats gain or all the Republicans gain or the polls are biased one way or the polls are biased another way. I know there was a, you know, couple different things that answer, but I, I hope that made sense. No, it, it does make sense. And, you know, as you point out, this model is not capital T truth. You know, and and that that mm -hmm. it is not a replacement for traditional reporting, expert analysis, or polling. In fact, it'd be much less accurate without the polling. Um, what I what I think you, you made an interesting point that that right now you think it's capturing some of the key factors in the political landscape, but you write the outputs don't match my intuitions about every race, and that's okay. So because the yeah. model is just one tool out of many. So give me an example of what the model says about one race that doesn't match your intuition. Yeah. So um, one example is it gives Joe Manchin in West Virginia, the Democratic incumbent senator, somewhere close to an 80 percent probability of winning. Manchin is in uh, probably the toughest statewide race of his career uh, in terms of general elections. And uh, he if I were just ballparking these probabilities, I would give Manchin a lower probability than 80%. But mm. the model doesn't think that way. The model looks at all the polling that's happened. It sees polls that have, you know, Manchin with a high single or low double digit lead. And it says that candidates who are in this position this far out usually do pretty well. And so it gives them, uh, you know, a pretty good chance, not a guarantee. 80-20 isn't a guarantee. We all learned that in 2016 in the presidential election because, you know, Trump's probability dropped to 20% at various different points. But um, it's that that's a race where I think the model is maybe a little bit too Democratic in that state. I think it's a little bit too Republican in North Dakota. You know, I'd, I'd probably want to dial it back five or 10 percentage points uh, or five or 10 percentage points in terms of probability. But that's also the point of the model is it's it's supposed to be able to clash with your intuitions. It's supposed to be one sort of data point. You're allowed to disagree with it. It's not, you know, uh, capital T truth. It's it's one way 
of looking at polls that's principled, that's interesting, that's useful, that tells us something about the general state of affairs, but doesn't demand to be the last word. Okay, by, by this point, people are going, okay, what does the model say right now? And what we're going to do that, as you point out, I, I, don't, I think people are aware of this, the Democrats have to pitch a near-perfect game to win the United States Senator, the Senate because the Republicans have a great map. So we're going to go through what the model is saying right now. We'll do this right after this. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Daily Standard today is brought to you by RX Bar. RX Bar set out to create a new kind of protein bar with a few simple, clean ingredients where every ingredient serves a purpose. They label all the core ingredients, egg whites, dates, and nuts on the front of the package and the ingredients to make up the texture and the taste on the back. Look, beyond being a go-to snack that checks off a number of nutritional boxes, they actually taste delicious. And and I've mentioned before when we talked about this, anytime I travel, I bring them along because they are the perfect snack. They are delicious. And they'll also get you through, say, a long flight or if you have to miss a meal. And they come in 11 delicious flavors. Now, as of recently, they've added three new flavors, mango pineapple. I haven't tried that yet. Peanut butter and berries and chocolate hazelnut. Also, they recently introduced the RX Nut Butter, which is a brand new product made with the same core ingredients as the RX Protein Bars. The new nut butters include a base of nuts, egg whites, dates, give you nine grams of clean protein. And that's available in honey, cinnamon, peanut butter. You're getting hungry already just listening to this, right? Uh, They're great on pretzels, fruit, or straight out of the convenient pouch when you're on the go. So, again, you know, RX bars are great for breakfast on the go, snacks in the office, pre-post-workout snacks. Uh, And as I I said, I I really, you know, go out and get myself a box of them and put them in my suitcase every time I travel. Look, here's a special offer for listeners to the Daily Podcast, the Daily Standard Podcast. For 25, actually 25% off your first order and and free shipping, Visit rxbar.com slash standard or enter promo code standard at checkout for a limited time. Listen to this. Limited time. Every order will receive free samples. Free The free sample offer is going to end June 30th. That's rxbar.com slash standard or enter promo code standard at checkout. Okay, so David Byler has rolled out his uh, swing seat model Right now, what are uh, what what is it actually saying? I mentioned one. Obviously, the Democrats have to be near pitch perfect. Who who actually has the edge as of June twentieth, two thousand eighteen? Right. So the model runs a ton of simulations, a bunch of different scenarios, and in seventy percent of those scenarios, Republicans hold the Senate, and in thirty percent of the scenarios, the Democrats take control of the chamber. So. That's the real advantage for the Republicans. It's not, you know, the game's not over. This isn't 99-1 or something like that. There are, you know, a really a lot of scenarios where the Democrats still win, but it's real edge for the Republicans. The way that I put it is kind of in real terms. If you flip a coin twice and you get anything other than two heads in a row, that's an event that has 75% probability. And if you roll a three to a six on just a normal six-sided die, that's about a 67% probability. So Republicans are right between that sort of three to six on the dice roll and uh, that coin flip scenario I described. In terms of raw seats, uh, the simulation that sort of most likely is 51 seats for the Republicans. So no change. That doesn't mean 
then those seats flip. In a lot of these scenarios, the Republicans lose a seat, but they also gain a seat, or they lose two seats and it's somewhere, and uh, they gain two Democratic seats somewhere else. But the sort of outcome that the model expects is 51 seats for the Republicans, but there's a lot of error. Uh, like I noted earlier, there's 30% chance of Democratic win- of a Democratic uh, chamber control, according to this model. And um, in some cases, Democrats uh, get, you know, 48, or, or sorry, excuse me, Democrats get 52 or 53 seats. In some cases, Republicans get 55 seats. There's there's a lot of variation in the overall outcomes this far out, but it guesses that Republicans keep the Senate. Yeah, well, what's also very, very interesting in this model, um, your second main takeaway, that Republicans have a higher ceiling than Democrats. So, you know, when you're looking at these models, your your median projection is 51 seats. Um, mm-hmm. In 20% of your simulations, Democrats can win 52 seats but in 20 percent of the simulations, you have Republicans going as high as 55 seats. So this mm-hmm. is interesting. You know, yeah. the Republicans have this this great map. Basically, if Democrats lose even one of the competitive races, uh, it's hard to imagine how they win control of the Senate. And you, you noted that uh, Democrats are polling well in a lot of races, but the margins are really thin, which means that the nat- even a relatively small change in the national mood can really swing, have, you know, really significant effects on the outcome. And if Republican uh, approvals tick up, uh, they, they could actually add a bunch of seats. Right, right. So this is sort of the key feature of the map that you're talking about, is that Republicans have a ton of different targets in this map, and Democrats have very few. If they hold all of their seats, which is uh, not an easy task because it includes states like Missouri and Indiana and West Virginia and North Dakota and Montana. So if they manage to hold all of those seats and take two more Republican seats like Arizona and Nevada, then they win control of the chamber. But if Republicans chip off even a little bit, then it becomes more difficult. Democrats have to head to Tennessee or head to Texas. Let, let's go through some of these these projections um, and how it works. So, mm-hmm. for example, in Texas, uh, Ted Cruz is conventional wisdom says he's got a tougher race, but he would still be, I would say, a strong supporter. What does your model say? Um, in you know, and in, in what percentage of the simulations does uh, Ted Cruz get reelected? Mm-hmm. Ted Cruz gets reelected in eighty two percent of the simulations that I ran. So. Um, 18%, which is the probability of a Democratic win of Beto O'Rourke winning, is not nothing. That's things that have a 20% probability do happen. But Ted Cruz is a really pretty clear favorite in that race. Okay, Missouri, which would seem to be one of the most vulnerable seats for uh, the Democrats. You have Claire McCaskill winning about 58% of the time. Does that match your intuition? Um. My intuition would be a bit less than that uh, for Claire McCaskill. You know, she she hasn't demonstrated some of the same strength in past elections that other incumbents have. I wrote a piece about this on the site a while back um, that she usually performs about as well as a generic Democrat does in elections. And it's hard to win as a generic Democrat in Missouri. But what we've seen from the polling is that McCaskill often holds uh, sort of a low single-digit edge over Holly, and the model thinks that a low single-digit edge is worth a little, you know, kind of tipping it beyond uh, a toss-up by a bit, but still keeping it really 
pretty close. And the model will move as information changes. So if Holly, you know, starts to gain and comes out to a big lead, uh, the model is going to take that information in and adjust accordingly. Okay, no, no, Nevada, again, a vulnerable Republican mm-hmm. seat. You, uh, you have this leaning Democrat. I do. Um, there's two forces pushing against each other in Nevada. So Nevada is very much a purple state. Hillary Clinton won it, but she didn't win it by a landslide. Um, and one thing that's important in these Senate elections is that incumbents generally tend to do better than non-incumbents. So if you're a sitting senator, um, oftentimes the voters uh, know something about you. Uh, if they think you're doing a good job, they sort of keep you in there. Uh, senators who are, you know, currently elected, tend to win re-election. So you have a purplish state and a very blue national environment sort of going up against an incumbent Republican. And that kind of kind of all washes out to light blue at this moment based on the polling. Arizona, that's the, probably the most striking things I'm noticing on your model. Because, of course, this is Jeff Flake's seat. The Republicans hold it. But you have your model would suggest that the Democrats have a I won't say well yeah I would say I would say very very strong chance you're at basically seventy six point six percent almost seventy seven percent of the simulations show the Democrat flipping that seat. So the Arizona race is one that I personally kind of disagree with the model on. It's sort of like West Virginia where I would actually guess if I had to put just a gut level probability on it that it's significantly closer than, you know, 76, 77 percent probability for the Democratic candidate. Um, And, you know, the model is working with what polling it has. And the polling that the model sees shows Kristen Sinema up by a solid amount against her Republican opponents. So that was a a result that was surprising to me. But this kind of goes back to what we were talking about before, where I don't think the model is necessarily capital T truth. I think it's getting the top lines right, but I would quibble with uh, where it's at in Arizona. Um, If I had to make a case to say that um, the Democrats were uh, the favorites there, that cinema was the favorite, Mm -hmm. it would probably run something like that. It's an open seat, so there's no incumbent. So the Republicans don't have that sort of bonus. Um, McSally looks like the favorite to win the primary. She and cinema have roughly similar levels of experience according to kind of that parameter in the model. And Arizona was a lot closer than it usually is in 2016. Uh, 2018 looks to be a democratic year and you could shake all of that together and uh, make a case that this race kind of uh, tilts more democratic. But again, this is one of those seats where um, we only have so much polling and we only have so much data uh, the data suggests the Democrats are the favorite. I'm a little bit more skeptical, but, you know, the model is what it is. Yeah. North, North Dakota, you have as uh, looks like the strongest Republican pickup opportunity. Heidi Heitkamp, of course, running for reelection as a Democrat in a, in a state that has been really trending very heavily Republican. You have um, Republicans winning 63.7 percent of the simulations, Democrats around 36 percent. Uh, that is, is that the single most likely Republican pickup of a, uh, of a democratic seat? Um, I'm not certain that it is. So the North Dakota estimate is primarily based on a recent poll that came out that had Kevin Kramer, uh, high camps, Republican opponent up by four points. Uh, the model knows that this is just one poll. It's 
increases the uncertainty around that. Um, but it kind of has sparse data. It's working off what it has. Um, in this case, I think the probability is a little bit too Republican, but you know, that's kind of how the model goes. If I had to guess who is more vulnerable, who is the most vulnerable Democrat without looking at any polling data whatsoever, I'd probably just guess McCaskill based on past mm-hmm. election record and, um, you know, biography and all the different things and state and so on and so forth. Um, but you know, if, if you think about it this far out, um, 60, 40 or 65, 35 is really anybody's game in these individual races. They, that's, that's a lot of room to move. I think people, when they see probabilities, they round things that are 50 up to 100 and they round things that are at less than 50 down to zero. Um, and, I don't think that's necessarily the the right approach. I don't think that kind of understands the numbers well. So, you know, in some of these races, I think the model's capturing about where my gut is. Uh, North Dakota and Arizona are examples where, you know, I disagree with it a little bit. You also have uh, Montana, um, where you wouldn't think that that would be a pickup uh, a possibility with... Uh, um, but you have the Democrats at an 85% chance of holding Montana at this point. That seems a little high. It does. But at the same time, I, uh, I feel better about that than I do about say Arizona or Nevada. It's a bit higher than what I would put it. Um, but Hester has, if you look at some of the qualitative factors sort of on the ground, he's, uh, appearing to be one of the stronger red state Democrats in, uh, this sort of group that includes Heitkamp and McCaskill and Donnelly and Manchin. He's, he's kind of appearing to be one of the stronger ones. So we'll see how that goes as more polling comes out. But at this point, I, I do think that race at least leans tester. You know, in, in states like in states like uh, North Dakota and Montana, w- one of the variables, of course, is the, the voting population is so small that you do have a different dynamic that the United States Senate has mm-hmm. a chance of actually, you know, being known personally by a much, much larger portion of the electorate than say in New Jersey or or Indiana or in Texas. Now we should have polls um, this afternoon by the time this uh, podcast comes out from, uh, from Wisconsin um, where Tammy Baldwin is, uh, is, is facing a challenge, Democrat Tammy Baldwin, your models as of right now, uh, show the Democrats uh, winning uh, ninety, basically ninety-four percent of the simulations, but by tomorrow that's going to change, right? When we get the Marquette uh, University law poll, because that'll be factored into your formula. Yes. So the model will change. Uh, it'll factor that information in, but it's possible that that information will just what we already know. We don't know what those numbers are. But maybe Marquette's going to come out with a poll that's not that close and sort of reinforces the idea that uh, it's still really a race where Baldwin is the favorite. And if you looked at it just in terms of fundamentals, you wouldn't necessarily expect Wisconsin to be competitive this year. Maybe in a presidential year where things are closely divided, like 2016, you'd expect that. But um, in this year, you know, it's a swing state, but there's an incumbent senator. So there's a bonus for that. The national mood is pretty democratic, and it just kind of hasn't garnered the same attention that a lot of these other states are. So, you know, but again, this is kind of the point of the model is that when the information comes out, it's going to eat that information, chew it up, figure out what the probability is based on that, 
and come out with it and we'll we'll see what happens yeah you you do mention I mean, let's let's go back to a little bit to the methodology here because you try to include as many yeah. reputable polls as possible you know so that if um, you know if it shows up on real clear politics or, or or would have showed up on the huffington post pollster you would include it in this swing seat model but you say if there's any suspicion a poll may be fake and there are sure a lot of those you do not put it in the model so, so how do you, um, how do you in your mind decide reputable, not reputable poll in or out? So there's a couple pretty easy tests. Uh, if it's a pollster that everyone knows and that has done previous polls and previous elections, um, you know, the pollsters themselves are visible, they talk about their polls, so on and so forth. Uh, then it's pretty, you know, that's a real poll. Like, I don't have to think about the fact that when Marquette comes out with its poll today, uh, whether it's fake or not, I know it's going to be real. Um, that's, that's, there's a lot of easy cases along those lines. And oftentimes fake polls give themselves away pretty easily. Um, fake pollsters oftentimes don't put together very professional write-ups and yeah. they don't disclose information about how their sample was collected or who they polled or when, or if they do disclose information, there's clues that, you know, that doesn't sound right, that doesn't make sense. This person clearly doesn't know what they're talking about. Um, the fake pollsters that we've seen uh, have not, in my opinion, been uh, masterminds. It's <laughs> often been pretty easy to kind of tell, you know, if somebody cooked this up in their garage and just typing numbers. So with all of that, it's been pretty easy to tell if there's a fake poll or if there's not a fake poll. Um, you know, a couple have slipped past, uh, sort of the screens in the last couple of cycles, but, uh, once you've looked at this for a while, uh, it's not too hard to figure that out. You, uh, so again, let the, the I would guess that Republicans are going to feel pretty good about where the model is right now. And you point out though, this is mm -hmm. kind of a, a buckle in everybody because there aren't a lot of polls right now. So your model is very, very sensitive to new information. Uh, so this could be, uh, you know, th this this could be kind of a, a very much of an up and down, you know, situation between now and November. Yeah, the model tries to react to new information as it comes out and as we see it. And, you know, we have polls in all of the sort of marquee major races. We have at least one data point, if not more than one, uh, from the, you know, pollsters and the surveys and all that, uh, to help us get a sense of where the race is at. We know how much races usually shift, you know, between now and the final result in November. So we can use that to get a sense of how much these races might shift and to sort of simulate all kinds of different outcomes and get a sense of these things. But, you know, the point of a model is to change as the information changes as well. It's not supposed to be omniscient. It's supposed to be sort of a principled, level-headed, uh, smart, programmatic way to look at information, both present and past. So as we get more data, the model is going to get more accurate. As the time goes on, it's, uh, the probabilities are going to become sort of better in terms of accuracy and calibration and the things that we measure. And uh, overall, I think that this is a sensible way to process the information and get predictions. And, you know, we talked a bit state by state about which ones I think are right, which ones I have a little bit more hesitation about. But 
overall, I think the model does a really good job on the top line. I think it captures the main dynamics of the race. I think, you know, the, the control probability seems right to me. The projected seats seem right to me. So that's, that's about where my head's at with it. All right, uh, David Byler, thanks so much. Uh, you can you can see this. You can look at uh, you know the 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 methodology. You can see where the uh, the model is right now on the on the Weekly Standard webpage. You know, after a lot of number crunching, it is officially live today with these forecasts for each of the 2018 Senate races and who will control the United States Senate. Thank you for listening to the Daily Standard podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We'll be back again tomorrow, and we will do this all over again. <laughs>